The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au we have been given to do what we are designed to do as believers in Jesus Christ, which is to glorify him and see him and delight in him and enjoy him in everything we do. And the key to living with maximum joy is living for God's glory, delighting in him and seeing all of who he is for us. We use our time to honor and please God above all else. That glorifies God and it brings us great joy. We refuse to engage in the world's foolishness and strive to understand and obey what God's will is. That glorifies God, and we get the joy out of it too. You know what I love about the Christian life? People say, well, the Christian life, it's a whole bunch of do's and don'ts, mostly don'ts. You don't get to do this, and you don't get to do that, and you don't get to go over here, and don't get to have that problem and all, and so on it unravels. But the reality of it is that when we do the do's, We enjoy what God has given us to do. It gives us far greater joy, far lasting joy than anything in the world with all of its creation, all of its vices, all of its problems, all of its drugs, all of its craziness can ever possibly give. The world loves to glamorize the party life. And all you ever see in the party life when it's displayed in advertising is the people going into the party and they all look all dressed up and nice and neat and they're having a wonderful time drinking some great champagne or wine or whatever it is. And they're partying away. What they never ever show you is the morning after when the, the clothes are all torn and there's, there's, pardon me, but there's vomit all over the place and the people are staggering around with crazy headaches. They can't remember where they've been or who they were with when they were there. And you say, where's the joy in that? And they say, oh, we had such a great time. How do you know? I don't remember a thing, but it must have been great because I can't remember anything. So it must have been a great time. And that's the way of understanding a great time. But we come... And in faith and repentance and obedience to God, we begin to do the things that God gives us to do. And we discover the joy is something we remember, for one thing. And it's something that's lasting. It goes on. I never wake up with a guilty conscience when I've been obeying the Lord the night before. But every time I'd go wake up after a night of disobeying God, I woke up with a terrible guilty conscience because I knew I disobeyed the Lord. We have been given a great... Joy, to live for God, to live pleasing to Him. And Paul is exhorting the people here, be careful how you walk, be careful how you live, not as the unwise, but as wise, not as foolish, but understanding and living for God and His glory. Well, The idea here is walking and living wisely. So we're going to unpack the passage with walking and wisely is kind of our overarching goal or or what we're striving for here. There's three main points. And if you have your note sheet that you'll know there's just two of them on your note sheet and I'll explain that in a second. Three main points are this. Number one, walk wisely by taking full advantage of the time. Number two, Walk wisely by understanding what the Lord's will is. And the third one, walk wisely by being continually filled with the Spirit. Now, 
I have a great passion to understand as best I can what it means for the Spirit of God's work in the life of the believer. I think I might have mentioned in times past that I think the Pentecostal and charismatic movements, God bless them, they've gone too far in one direction. And I also think the, charis- the conservative evangelicals, in a reaction against that, have gone too far the other direction. Uh, in my t- studies, a little bit of reading of the Puritans and some of the old writers, Spurgeon and Lloyd-Jones being among my favorites, and they talked about the Spirit of God and the filling of the Spirit and the anointing of the Spirit not in charismatic ideology or terminology, but they talked in the same manner, and I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. So I began to study and study and study that particular idea where he says, be filled with the Spirit. And I realized if I put it into a three-point sermon as one out of three points, I would never, ever be able to cover properly and give all the background that I want to give to understand properly what he means when he says, be filled with the Spirit of God. And so next Sunday, we're going to take up the third point, and we'll use the whole 45 minutes to two hours, whatever long it takes me, to go through what that means. And brothers and sisters, this is a key point. Okay? And I'm looking forward to it, but I don't want to do a disservice by trying to jam it into one sermon this morning. So besides all that, having besides saying all that, the more I studied points one and two, the more convicted I got about point one, and then point two, as I studied that, I thought, you know what, there's something for us as a church to really learn and understand, and there's a point to be made for all of us in points one and two. So I'm going to give the time to that, and then we'll give the time to the Spirit of God and His filling next week, praying all the way that God would fill us with His Spirit, that we would both hear what the Word of God says and put into action this week and next week. So first of all, walk wisely, taking full advantage of the time because the days are evil. This is in verse number 15. Notice the command is to be careful how or what manner you walk. The clause in verse 16 is a simultaneous participle. And what it means is be careful how you walk, making the most of your time. So you put those two ideas together and he's saying this. Listen, walking as wise people is done by making the best use of your time. Now, in order to walk wisely and not as unwise, we have to begin where the Bible begins with wisdom. And what the Bible says In the book of Proverbs, you all know the verse, you've heard it since Sunday school days, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? And fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9, verse 10, takes a little further. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. In 15 and verse 33 of the book of Proverbs, he says, the fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes humility. We'll not be able to walk wisely if we do not first know God and know the fear of the Lord. Now that's a phrase, an idea that had a lot of time and a lot of place 60, 80, 100 years ago, but for some strange reason, in churches and in preaching, you'll hear the the phrase, the fear of God, or a God-fearing person has taken a dive. We don't mention it much anymore. I think there's a misunderstanding about what the fear of God truly is. We say, oh, we don't fear God, we live in awe of God. And there is a sense in which that is absolutely true. Fear does mean the reverent awe of God, but when we stop... 
And we look full in the face of the living God, like we've been trying to do on Sunday nights, to understand who God is. That's a little shameless plug. Come out tonight and learn a little more about who God is. There's a reason. Because when we learn who God is and we understand God in the terms of his attributes, his holiness, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his unchangeableness, his justice and his righteousness, and there's so many more we've still got to look at yet, it brings us a sense of absolute awe of God. But an awe that also says God is to be feared in the sense that he is not safe. C.S. Lewis I'll never get beyond this simple little kid's story, right? Lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. You remember the story? Lucy's talking to the beaver. If you've never read the books, please read them, and you'll, you don't think I'm crazy when I say this. Lucy's talking to the beaver, and he says, she says, what well, is Aslan? He's a lion. Is he safe? And the beaver turns around, oh, no. No, no, no. He's a lion. He's not safe. But he's good. And then all of a sudden, Lucy gets, and, and C.S. Lewis kind of captured the idea quite well, right in that statement. He's not safe, but he's good. And the God that we have to deal with is a God who is to be lived before in fear and trembling and reverent awe. And brothers and sisters, that one thing that kind of bothers me, and I was talking to Heather about this the other day, we're driving out to uh, Forest Edge to pick up Cameron about the way that Christianity and our modern times seem to slip into this idea that you can come so casual and so carefree and so careless into the presence of the living God to worship. But our God is the very same God who stood on Mount Sinai and the Mount Sinai shook and there was thunder and lightning and flashes and all of that. That's the God before whom we are called to deal. And wisdom is the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Fearing God. If we are not in a right relationship with God, if we do not know God's forgiveness of our sin, if we are still living in ongoing sin against God, we are by very nature walking and living as unwisely. Sin against God does not display a heart of reverent fear for God. We are using the time we have to our own worst possible end, and that's our destruction. And Paul says, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And the Old Testament wisdom literature makes it so clear that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. We can have a PhD in nuclear medicine, live our whole lives to solve one medical problem after another, but without an intimate faith relationship with God, the ultimate end of life for us is death and destruction. We are living unwisely. You're going to have a PhD in the highest mathematics. I read, I watched part of the story of Einstein, and he's unpacking some of his theories of relativity and all this other stuff, and this guy's got a mind that just boggles my mind. I'm a dumb chippy for a good reason. I wasn't smart enough for nothing else, so that's what they let me do. And I work with wood. And this guy was so incredibly smart. He could understand in concepts in physics and mathematics. I tried reading some of his paper. I couldn't even get beyond the first paragraph. I didn't get it. And that guy, for all of his work brilliance, all of his understanding, his ability to think beyond what the box said, he lived to his own destruction because he never was in a relationship with God in faith and fear and trembling. 
Without a relationship of forgiveness from God, we are steadily working towards our own eternal destruction. But living and walking as wise, taking full advantage of our time, must begin with the fear of the Lord, the fear of God. When we come before God, and we see God as He truly is, the perfection of His justice and His righteousness, the limitlessness of his power and his knowledge. I'd love to take an hour and unpack these four, but I can't do that. The unchangeableness of his person, his purpose, and his promises, and the beauty of his holiness. Last Sunday night, I had such a great time studying all through the day about the holiness of God, trying to unpack the holiness so we could get some idea of it. The beauty of God's absolute holiness. And when we stand before God, and we realize that we are sinners offending and offensive to God, it must cause us to tremble in terror before God. Brothers and sisters, if we hear the gospel message, and the message of God's justice and God's wrath and God's fury against Christ doesn't cause our knees to knock and our our bones to tremble at the God that we are to deal with, we will never fully understand grace. We won't even begin to understand grace. Because when we realize that God is absolutely furious at us for our sin, and yet He's in grace... And in love, he gave the Lord Jesus Christ to die on a cross on my, in my place and in your place. That's grace. The idea that God is impartial, he doesn't care about sin, is so radically not biblical. And the reason why I believe our Christianity is candled in the Western world with such a callous carelessness is because we have lost sight of the God to whom we deal with, the God before whom we must fear. We see the greatness of the grace of God displayed in the love of God to give Jesus to die on a cross in our place. Then our terror is replaced with a reverent awe. It ought to take our breath away. It ought to make us stagger with wonder to think that God would have grace on someone like me and someone like you. God who is infinitely holy, we who are radically sinful in every thought and word and action, and God had grace and said, I will forgive them because I will give Jesus to die in their place. When we stand before God and we see that and it causes us to fear, and, it, and that fear is so replaced with a reverent awe from God as we realize who He is and that we have been adopted into His family as we respond by faith. Normally that great point about the men on the, outside the houses in Egypt taking the blood in the, in the bowl and the bit of hyssop and wiping the blood like a paintbrush on the doorpost and the lintel. And in faith and obedience, they were obeying the command of God and they were trusting that God would see that blood and pass over them. When we do the same, we take the blood of Christ, figuratively in a sense, and apply it to our own lives. We say, the blood of Christ on me. And when Christ, the God the Father, sees the blood of Christ that washes my sins away, He will pass over in judgment, and I will no longer be under the judgment of God, but I will know the peace and the relationship, the joy of being made one of His children. That ought to cause us to fear. And we stand in that place, and we fear God. We cry out to Him, 
in faith that God would forgive. We seek His face. We seek His favor. We seek His forgiveness for the sin we've committed. And we begin to live by faith in Him. We begin to live turning away from sin and turning towards God. Then we'll know what it is to begin to walk and live wisely. So as believers in God, how are you living? As a Christian, how are you using your time? This is how he describes and displays wise living. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, comma, making the most of your time. So the, the living and wisely is displayed by how we use our time. So Christian, how are you using your time? Isn't it stupid? The amount of hours we got in the day, 24 hours. Why is it that I can't get as much done in 24 hours as somebody else can? Why am I always running around going, I just don't have enough time. I don't have enough time. And we're running around trying to get things done in our crazy busy world, which we all live in. We're always running out of time. But here's the point. God has given in his wisdom and his knowledge He's given you exactly the amount of time that you need. Yes. And he hasn't given anybody an extra dose of time. He doesn't look at Con and say, you know what? He's got more than else to do, so I'll give Con 25 hours a day and we'll give him eight days a week and he'll get it all done. And, and Nelson, well, he doesn't have much to do anyway. He's a pastor. We'll just give him six days and we'll only give him 20 hours in a day. He doesn't play with time like that so that one guy has more and one guy has less. He's given us all exactly the same amount of time. Listen, it's got nothing to do with how much you have to do and how much time you do or don't have. It's what you do with the time that you have. That's the difference. And Paul says, listen, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time. The fool in the book of Proverbs is described as one who is lazy, a sluggard. In Proverbs 10, verse 4, Poor is he who walks with a negligent hand. Works, sorry, with a negligent hand. But the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 12, 24, The hand of the diligent will rule, but the slack hand will not, sorry, will be put to forced labor. Proverbs 13 and verse 4, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. The Proverbs, the book of wisdom of God says, Listen, it's the lazy man who runs into constant struggle and trouble. And Paul is saying, Be careful how you use your time. Make the most of it. Brother and sister in Christ, how do you use your time? What are you doing with your time? Take full advantage, what Paul says, of the time that God has given you. Take full advantage. Why? Because the days are evil. What does he mean? The days are short. God's return is coming closer. And how many of us are so busy taking care of the lands and the fields and the flocks and the herds, to use biblical language, or our stock portfolios, or our business investments, or our houses, or our all the stuff that we have gathered up and heaped up for ourselves. We're so busy taking care of that that we're not using our time wisely. The return of the Lord is close. Be careful how you use your time. God has blessed you with some time. It's got one of God's greatest and most precious gifts to us. I've given you this time. What will you do with it? to glorify me.
You've been brought into a relationship with me. How are you going to use that time to glorify me? You're going to just flitter it away, waste it, throw it away? Martyred missionary Jim Elliott said it the best. I've had this little phrase or little line in the back of my head for years. Only one life to live. It will soon be past. Only what is done for Christ will last. Brothers and sisters, when you stand before God, he won't really be too concerned about what you did with your stock portfolio. But what you did with what God blessed you with, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he did, what you did with the talents and abilities he gave you to glorify him and spread the gospel, what you did with all those things, what you did with his word, there's always some well-intentioned and, and someone who's trying to help who suggests to me, you need to preach less. If you just preached for 20 minutes, it'd be so much better. And I think to myself, you know what? And I actually said this one day. I said, do you realize that the average Christian watches between 20 and 35 hours of television a week? And you'd like me to take it from 45 minutes down to 20 minutes so that, Why? We spend more, I think I actually did a chart one day of all the things I spent time on the week. And do you realize that like number 20 in the list from biggest to the smallest was preaching and sitting under the sound of the preaching of the word of God. Let's, let's cut the time down for the intake of the word of God. We've got so many other things to do. And one of the things that scares me as I look around and see Western contemporary Christianity, we've got time for everything under the sun except for the things above the sun. There's a problem. Why don't we see the revival happening that we're so, we're praying for? Because we're so divided. We've got so many other things to do. The Lord calls us each week to a feast to come around the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and feast on Him. But we're too busy because we bought a new car. We bought a new house. We got some investments. We got this other thing to do and that other thing to do. And we're so, we're committed to the church of Jesus Christ. As soon as I've got everything else done, I'll be there. Sorry if that's a little harsh. But that's why our churches are dwindling. I think I've told the story before about the, the fellow was sent overseas to um, be an ambassador. And every morning he was supposed to go into his ambassador's office and he would get a special parcel in the mail. It was the diplomatic pouch, they call it. And inside that pouch was special communication letters sent from the government back home to this man in his office. And every morning he was supposed to sit down and open that pouch and pull out all the letters and read through and get all the instructions and all the information he was supposed to use as he conducted his affairs as the ambassador representing the far-off mother country to the people in his own, this little island where he was living. And one day he, he was very diligent about keeping to make sure he didn't deviate from this set pattern for his life. And one day he met a young girl and he started to spend some time with her and she was a lovely young girl and they had a great romance and, and the more time that he spent with her, he started cutting corners and he was spending less and less time with the diplomatic pouch and less and less time in communication with the mother country and, and as they got to know each other, he would share with her things that were going on and then gradually, without even realizing it, he started sharing with her government secrets where the troop movements were going to be, where the ships would be, where the armies would be. And one day he woke up 
and he heard the sound of shelling out in the harbor, and the gunboats were sending shells over, and they were bombing his little island. And he went to find his friend. He was so concerned about his girlfriend, he went to find her to make sure she was okay, and lo and behold, she was nowhere to be found. And he went to where she is living, and the place was emptied out, and she was gone. And he said, have you, have you seen Rosa? And the lady at the front said, there's never been a Rosa here. And all of a sudden, this ambassador dawned on him what had happened in his abandonment of the diplomatic pouch, in his engagement with this girl, and his involvement in the lifestyle of the world in which he was living. He had forgotten to read the diplomatic pouch, and even beyond that, what he did know, he'd shared with her, and he realized that he would now go back to the mother country in chains as a traitor. He had betrayed his company, his country. What's the point of the story? The point of the story is simply this, that he became so invested and so involved in the world that he was in, he forgot what the main idea was, was to represent the mother country in the land that he was placed. Brothers and sisters in Christ, listen. This is not our home. This world we live in, it's passing by so fast. The life you have been given to live is incredibly short. The older I get, the more I realize that. When I was a young man, I, I thought 30 years of age, man, that is really, really old. I can't, I, I was a little kid living in, in Barrick, going to Barrick Primary School. And I remember sitting there thinking, what year will I turn 30? 2000 something or other, right? I thought, man, that's so far away. I got so many years to go. I'm now almost 20 years past that. And I'm like, oh my goodness, the life has gone by so quickly. And Paul is saying, listen, brothers and sisters, be careful how you walk. Be careful how you live your life of faith in this world, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time. The days are evil. Brothers and sisters, there is a world to reach with the gospel, and we're too busy messing around with our junk at home. And I say that not to your shame. I say it to my own. I look at all the trinkets and the toys I've got, and I spend an unbelievable amount of time Messing with them. Listen to, uh, this is Jonathan Edwards. He was one of arguably America's greatest philosopher-theologian, lived in the 1700s before the Revolution, and he said this. I think he was uh, 17 or 18 years of age when he wrote these words. Resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. Resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. He lived his life as a pastor and a philosopher and a theologian, writing and preaching sermons. One of his sermons, you probably heard of it, it's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It sparked a revival that spread all through the 13 colonies of America in the 1700s. 40s and 50s, if I remember correctly. You know what we do with our time? We pass time. We fill in time. We try and make the time go by quicker. Or we spend so much of our time just trying to keep our world in this world going and making it as productive as possible that we miss the main point. Now listen, 
How do we use our time wisely? Let's answer the question. He's saying, be careful how you use it. Make the most of it. We use our time biblically. Seven days are given to us, six days for labor and one day for rest. I don't know if it's very poignant or not, but in my writing quickly, I wrote down seven days for labor, one day for rest. That's not what God said. He said six days for labor and one day for rest. God designed us and commanded us both to work and to rest. So using your time wisely, I'm not here banging on the pulpit to say, we all got turned to workaholics and use every single spare minute of the day, never mind rest, never mind sleep, never mind family, trying to preach the gospel to every nation. God made us and designed us to both work and rest. So using our time wisely means laboring when it's time to labor and resting when it's time to rest. We use our time prayerfully. You read the lives of these great old men. I love the old saints, the guys that died a 100 years ago or more. You read their lives. All of them were men and women of prayer who devoted great times of prayer. Martin Luther had a great saying about being busy. Martin Luther, by the way, produced 185 written works in one year, one every two days. No mass-produced paper, no computers, no email, no ballpoint pens, dip and scratch, old books, few books, not many, in a cold, damp, drafty place that he lived and worked. He produced 185 written works in one single year. He preached on average seven to ten times a week. Most Sundays he would preach three to five times. He said this, I'm so busy, I must take three hours today to pray. Because he realized, I don't know what it is with my generation, the pastors I hang around with, we're so busy trying to do stuff all the time, we've forgotten that the main point is to pray. So we use our time biblically, we also use our time prayerfully. We seek to take the full advantage of our time. Taking full advantage is taking the opportunities that God gives us. Listen to what the Bible says, Ecclesiastes verse chapter 9, verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. In other words, while you're working in this life, do everything with all your might. What did Paul say? Do everything as unto the Lord. Do all to the glory of God. What does that mean for us? That means when we go to work, we strive with all of our hearts to work as unto the Lord so that we might serve God through our work that the employer, employee that we are surrounded by might see. You know what? He works differently. There's something different about that guy. He doesn't take extra long on his breaks. He always comes on time. He never leaves on time. He's always diligent about the work he does. He doesn't use his time unwisely. There's something different about him. He isn't constantly trying to cut the corners. In Galatians 6, Paul says, So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. In other words, you have the opportunities to serve how quickly we find ways out of them. And I say that not to your shame, I say it to my own. Colossians 4, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity that you have been given. It's finding creative ways to use your time so that you can glorify God in everything you do. It's finding ways to glorify God in the very things that you are doing. 
so that God is pleased with the work you do. You do it in faith that God will be pleased with it. Listen. Beware, brothers and sisters, the great danger of wasting time in pursuits that do not glorify God. Like that man in the story, he forgot to spend time reading the diplomatic pouch, the letters from the home country. We have letters from the home country in a book. And it's, it behooves us daily to spend time in that word, seeking out God's wisdom for how we should live the day. It behooves us to spend time on our knees in communication with our master and our king that we would see his instructions for how we should live. One moment after we die, all the wealth we have gained will be gone or passed on to our kids. One moment after we die, all the possessions we worked so hard to build up and to keep and to preserve and look after are going to be gone. One moment after we die, all that remains is what we have stored up in our hearts of God and His Word. One moment after we die, all that remains is the treasures we've stored up in heaven. What did Jesus say about it? He said, look to store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Time is a precious gift of God. Use it to honor and glorify Him for His gracious gift. The days are evil. The days are short. Take every opportunity to further the gospel, to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ in a deeper and a more profound way. We're talking about this the other day in the car again. The greatest difference between the third world countries and the first world Christians is a lack of urgency. It's it's not important to us. There is no urgency to be with God. There's no urgency to know God more. Now, like I said before, I think I said a few weeks ago, the devil has gotten to us in one different way than a lot of other countries. Instead of taking us, taking everything away from us so we would despair, he's given us an overabundance of stuff so that we would forget the Lord our God. You know what Moses told the Israelites walking into the land? When you get into the land and you live in cities you did not build and you live in countries you did not no, they conquered them. Cities they didn't build, vineyards they didn't plant. When you drink the wine that you didn't pluck the harvest of, when you eat the fruit of the ground that you didn't plant, when you do all these things, he said, watch out. Beware lest you forget the Lord your God. And brothers and sisters, we've walked into a heritage of great wealth in Christian Christianity and Christian truth. And there are things that we didn't fight for and strive for. And because we take them so easily and so quickly, we often take them so much for granted that we no longer see the urgency in studying and craving and desiring the Word of God and spending time with God's people in prayer, calling out to God for help. I told you before... Um, my friend Jim Gillette, we support him as part of uh, oh, Ireland Outreach International. That's right. He was talking about going and preaching in Uganda. I think it was Uganda. And he stood in a, on a little umbrella, and it was 125 degrees or some amazing amount of heat. And he had the only shade in the whole place because he was the only white man there, I believe. And all these ladies had come across and they'd walked for three, four, five hours across the desert and they sat out in the sun and he stood under an umbrella with his Bible and he preached and taught and taught and preached and read and taught and preached and prayed and he went on for two and three quarter hours. 
He said by the time he got done, the two and three quarter, he was absolutely drained. He had no energy left. He looked down where he was standing. It was just a big pool of wet underneath his feet because he'd just been dripping in sweat the whole time he was preaching. And finally, in exhaustion, he just sat down. Two and three quarter hours. You wind me up and give me a couple of good, strong coffees, I might go for two hours. Two and three quarter? He sat down, Lady leaned over to him and said, excuse me. And he said, yes. And she said, I walked six hours across the desert to be here today. I expect at least three hours of teaching. At least three hours of teaching. You know the difference is? They've got nothing else. To her, Christ meant so much because she lived with constant poverty. She lived with high infant mortality rates. They lived with filthy water and war-torn areas. So for her, she craved to hear about the God who loved her, who sent Christ to die for her. So she was willing to walk across the desert in the heat for six hours to sit for three hours in the sun and hear someone open and expound the word of God to her. And I hear that and I'm ashamed. Because how quickly do I put it aside? How quickly do I say, you know what, i got other things to do. And when I say other, in back of my head, I know how it's spelt. B-E-T-T-E-R. i got better things to do. To my shame. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Paul is saying, be careful how you walk. Be careful how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time, using your time for God's glory, and you're good. The Lord Jesus Christ is, is the ultimate example of this. He took great care to take full advantage of his time in the Mark's gospel. Take your Bible, flip over to Mark chapter 1. We won't get through point 1. I can see that already, but it doesn't matter. Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. In Mark's Gospel, you see Jesus there. He comes into the synagogue, and He walks in there, and He stands there, and He teaches the people. And this is in verses number 21, 22, 23. He's teaching the synagogue, and all of a sudden there's a man with an unclean spirit there. And Jesus sees him. And the spirit sees Jesus, and he cries out, What do we have to do with you, Jesus, son of Nazareth? Or Jesus of Nazareth, the son of the Most High God, the Holy One of God, sorry. And Jesus rebukes him and says, Be quiet and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulses and cries out, and all the people are amazed. Who is this who teaches with authority? He commands the unclean spirits and they obey him. And the news spreads throughout the whole village. You can imagine, eh? Little tiny village, little synagogue. He's in there preaching. And all the people here, did you hear about that, that crazy guy with the demon? This teacher just cast the demon out of him. And they're all amazed. And Jesus goes into Peter's house and Peter's mother-in-law is lying there sick with a fever. He takes her by the hand and he raises her up. And she's full of strength and she gets up and she's healed and she just starts serving all the people. And that evening, as soon as Sabbath was done, all the village flooded to the door. My friend Paul Washer, I shouldn't say my friend, he's a guy I know I met once down in New Zealand. And he tells a story, he said when he was a missionary in, in uh, um, Peru, 
He went up into the mountains to do a Bible conference, and he took a friend of his who was a doctor there. And they arrived, and he was going to teach for three or four days. And as soon as word got out amongst the Christian believers there that there was a doctor in the camp, everything went crazy. The conference was canceled, and all these people were flooding up to see, not Paul, to see his friend the doctor. And they were literally fighting and reaching and straining to get through to this doctor. And this doctor only had a small bag, a few medicines and bits and pieces. And he worked for hours, over a day and a half without stopping, handing out medicines, healing, not healing, but ministering to people with medical issues. And these people were desperate to get the help they wanted from this one doctor that visited them. It isn't like the scene in Jesus when he's outside the door of the house and he's healing people one after the other. It's not like the movie show where they're all kind of sitting in little groups in the grass and he's just kind of wandering through and, and brushing one and touching the other and talking to the other. They would have been clawing at the door to get to him. There's somebody here who can heal us. You say, what's the point? That night he goes to bed. Jesus himself said that when he healed, power went out from him. Jesus was a man, is a man, ordinary flesh and blood human, just like you and me, yet without sin. He would have been exhausted after a day of ministry. You know what he did the next morning, early in the morning? The Bible has the idea, before the sun was even rising, Jesus rose early and went off to a distant place by himself. And there he was praying, and the disciples came and found him. His life was given to serving the Lord, to using his time to the best advantage that he could. And Paul is saying to us in Ephesians chapter 5, be careful how you walk, make the most of your time. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as those who have stood and looked full into the face of God who is holy and experienced the saving grace of God in our lives, and know or ought to know what it is to live in the fear of the Lord, how are you using your time? Am I advocating becoming workaholics that don't sleep and, and drive themselves into early graves? No, I'm not. I'm saying that we should use our time to the full advantage. And when God says it's time to rest, we need to learn to rest. And you know what one of my biggest problems is? When God says it's time to rest, I keep thinking, yeah, that's eternity. I keep pushing it off. I'll, I'll sleep later. I've learned to my own detriment. You can't do that. The older I get, the more I learn that. My mom, God bless her. She's listening to this too on the tape later on. But she used to come up and meet me. And whenever she'd see me, because they lived quite a ways from us, she'd say two things. Hello, you look tired. Every time. <laughs> I actually used to tease her about it. But you see, I had ignored God's command about the point of resting. So making use of our time wisely, using our time the best of our ability to serve and honor God is both working when it's time to work and knowing when it's time to rest and taking those times to rest. I want to give you, because our time is gone, so we'll forget point two, but I want to give you this little breakdown. Uh, Whitfield preached seven days per week, most of his life. Luther, I told you, produced 185 written works in a single year, but he had that point. When he was so busy that he had to get so much done, he spent the first hour, two hours, three hours just in prayer. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he's one of my heroes. Russ and I were sharing this before. Uh, Spurgeon preached four to ten times per week. 
He revised and edited sermons for print publications. He lectured two hours at a pastor's college. He read, this kills me, he read six weighty books of theology. How often do you think? I'll give you a hint. It's not a month. In a week. Six weighty books of theology per week. I'm lucky if I get four, through four and six months, but don't tell anybody that. He read six weighty books of theology per week. He was actively involved in 66 charities in and around his church. He attended three weeknight meetings at his church, and he shepherded his church of 6,000-plus members. By the way, he knew them all by name. You say, how did he do that? He worked long hours, but you know what he also did? He took one full day a week every Wednesday. He would spend it with his wife and his children. He spent time every day meditating and thinking and reflecting on the Word of God. His average sermon prep time, this also kills me, was about an hour to an hour and a half. You say, how could he do that? His life was so steeped in the Word of God, even though he was doing all these other things, that when he got up to preach, he could simply open his Bible, and as his, his wife would read the text, and as she was reading the text of Scripture, he'd have a piece of paper, he'd be making divisions, points, and subpoints as she's reading out loud the text. That's how he prepared for sermons. You say, what's the point? The, my point is this. He had seven days a week. So do we. He had 365 days a year. So do we. He had 24 hours a day. So do we. He had, no, he didn't have any computers. He didn't have a mobile phone, didn't have email, didn't have all those other things, which, by the way, may be a point. I'm just saying. He didn't have any of those electronic devices. He just had the time, and he had a word of God. He didn't even have a computer search engine to help him find verses in the Bible. He just simply knew his Bible so well. And those men, whether it's Spurgeon or Lloyd-Jones or Whitfield or Luther or all these other great men of God throughout history who have accomplished so much for God, they knew two things. They Number one, they more than two, they knew the fear of God. They knew how to live before God in fear and trembling for the great God that He is. They were men of prayer, every single one of them. Devoted great times to prayer. Number two, they knew the secret of working, laboring in the Lord, and laboring for the Lord. And number three, they knew, for whatever it is, they knew the secret of rest. Resting in the Lord and resting for the Lord. And they made great advantage of their time. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I know I've taken more time than I should have. But it just, it's on my heart and it's just a burden on my own heart for my own life. What are you doing with your time? How are you using your time to glorify God? And I plead with you as we close, I plead with you that you would sit down before the Lord to consider what you do with your time. Maybe even take a diary and spend a week and just write down all the stuff you're doing with your time and all the time you're spending doing the different things. Brutal honesty. Before the Lord, ask the Lord, what can I do that would greatly improve my use of time? It is one of the most precious gifts that God has given us. I think He's given us, if you want to count them, three great precious gifts. Number one, He's given us the Spirit of God to dwell in us. We'll look at that next week. Number two, he's given us the Word of God. 
think I was sharing with you, or maybe last week, I remember who, I was catching up with a sister in the church, and she was reflecting to me how the Lord had just laid on her heart the preciousness of the Word of God that God had given to us, and how little we know of it, how little I know of it. Thirdly, they knew what it was to rest in the Lord and to labor in the Lord and for the Lord. What are you going to do with your time? How are you going to spend your time? The third gift, sorry, is the the time that God has given us. I hope and I pray with all my heart that we as a people of God will learn to take full advantage of our time and use it for His glory and for our good. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray, and then uh, we're going to sing the benediction together. Loving Father, we come before you again, and we give you thanks, O God, for the tremendous and precious gift of time. Father, you who are outside of time, you who need, who do not need time to accomplish your works. Father, we think about the Lord Jesus Christ who stepped into time and spent 90% of his life living in obscure quietness away in the hills of Nazareth and used his time to the greatest advantage Father, he could say at the end of his life in his high priestly prayer, all that you have given me to do, I have done. He had finished all that God gave him to do, all you gave him, and he did it well. Father, he was a man of prayer. And Father, we praise you that he is still a man of prayer interceding for us at your right hand. Father, I pray, I plead with you, O God, that you would do a great work in our lives, all of us, that we would become a people of prayer. We would become a people of the book who are devoted to you, devoted to the word of God, devoted to spending time, using our time wisely, that we might glorify you in everything that we do. Father, I plead with you for help. For our church. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you, O God, for the grace that you have poured out to so many people, hundreds of people, over 35 years of a church's existence. Father, thank you for the grace that you are still pouring out. Father, you know this morning I spoke more from my heart than my notes. And so, Father, I just I ask you, O God, if I have said something that I shouldn't have said, that you would strike it from our memories. Father, I plead with you that you would do a great work amongst us all. Father, we ask you these things and we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.